From KIOS in Omaha and Exarban Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, we continue our look into the congressional candidates who want to represent you in the federal government leading up to Nebraska's primary on May 12th. Last week, I spoke with Representative Don Bacon. This week, I have a conversation with congressional candidate Ann Ashford, who is running against Bacon for Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. I, I was chair of the Board of Inclusive Communities for a while. And we had an executive director then, and they have wonderful people now too, but Barb Angelello. And one thing she said that's always been right at the top of my head every single day, and that is, if you know someone, you can't hate them. Ashford speaks about her feeling that after growing up as a Republican, the party left her, so she left the party and became a Democrat who prioritizes individual views over forced consensus. After this quick break, stick around for my conversation with Ann Ashford right here on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. Those of you who are already listening on Stitcher get why. For those of you who don't know it, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Probably even more now that we're all isolated, right? Everybody's starting a podcast. Uh, Joe Biden is starting a podcast. Hillary Clinton is starting a podcast. You know, among others. I don't know if those are on there. I don't think they exist yet. But anyway, Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription service called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Do you like true crime? You can listen to exclusive archives from Criminology or bonus episodes from True Crime Garage or ad-free episodes from My Favorite Murder and Marvel's Wolverine, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. So go to stitcher.com premium to sign up today and use promo code RIVERSIDE on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. And today I have a conversation with congressional candidate Ann Ashford, who is currently a congressional challenger to Representative Don Bacon for Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. This was recorded in July 2019, before the current COVID-19 outbreak and any government responses to it. Please enjoy. First of all, I had seen some tweets, and I think you would like the tweet of mine like four years ago or something. That was the first time. And that was the last time? I'm not that <laughs> active on Twitter. Not. No, okay. I, I used to do Twitter a lot more than I do now. Um, but uh, then I was so I was I knew you were running, but then I was just looking at the announcement again, the first time that it had been announced, I think, in the World Herald. And I didn't realize, so I, I saw that it said that you previously were registered as a Republican I until was. 2016. I was. So I'm curious. Let's just start with that even. Sure. Uh, what's the story of sort of you developing a political ideology and maybe the evolution of that? Sure. Um, so... I was always brought up in a family, uh, or not always, I was brought up in a family of um, service to others. And most of my family, my parents on back, decided to do it through medicine and become physicians or nurses or whatever. Um, but it was all about service. And that sort of went into the political ideology, too. And the Republican Party that I joined back when I was 18 years old um, was one that truly believed and represented a person's right to be who they were, to love who they were, to um, have access to the services that they wanted to have access, and a little bit more physically conservative. Mm -hmm. And going through all those years past the time of 18 years old, I saw the Republican Party drastically change. I really saw that sea change, that cliff, mm -hmm. um, happen in 1994, with those congressional elections and Newt Gingrich coming to the forefront and really, really pushing that conservative Christian ideology on the party, which is fine. Um, I stand up for anybody's rights to have whatever they believe in, but that doesn't happen to be me. I, I believe in stay out of the bedroom mm -hmm. um, and that personal decisions who really don't affect anybody else. Um, should not be a part of a party's platform to eliminate them or to somehow reduce access for them or make it harder for people to live their lives. And so I kept trying to think that I could change it from the inside. I had switched parties once before registration, about five weeks. I went as an independent okay. or nonpartisan in the state. Sure. 
um, to me, that I like independent better. Yeah. It just says something stronger. Nonpartisan seems sort of wimpy, so I think we sort of wimp out there. Well, I think everybody likes Nebraska. to think of themselves as independent, even exactly. if they vote on party lines. It's like, exactly. well, I, I'm choosing this. this yeah. kind of idea. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my adult decision to do this. Right. And so, um, but anyway, I was nonpartisan. I think it was about five weeks that I lasted. And I went back to the party because to get things done, a lot of times you have to work within a party. And then um, my husband was elected to Congress. And so on a federal level, what I saw was what I think of as a good party operating. And that is the Democratic Party really encompasses all comers. Whatever your ilk is, if you're a little bit more on the conservative side, if you're a little bit more on the left side, the more progressive side, whatever it is, the Democratic Party truly makes room for you. And so when I started seeing that and seeing the um, not absolute adherence to a dogma, but really allowing people to exercise their independence and their individual thought, and they would allow their representatives to exercise whatever they needed to do to represent the district they were coming from, Mm -hmm. and understanding that we have differences all across this country. So once I saw that, and then, so that, I I was a Democrat in everything but the name. Well, and to you, that seems to be an individualism thing more than anything else, Right. right? That sort of acceptance of all individualism. Right. And the letter behind my name never really meant much. Mm-hmm. But with the election in 2016, I finally gave it up and realized that the Republican Party, I had left it, it had left me, whatever the case may be, both were true, um, and that it just wasn't a place for me anymore. And so I think it was on December 14th, 2016, at 11.23 in the morning, I went during my lunchtime and changed my political affiliation, and I've never been happier. Was it hard for you to give up that idea of changing it from the inside? No, because um, I'm pretty pragmatic, so I understand that even though I don't judge people by labels, other people judge you by labels. Sure. And so even though I know, and I'm pretty strong too, so I know what I am inside. I know that I'm this individual. And I've seen that the Democratic Party um, welcomes individuals and doesn't make you stick to this dogma. Um, that So it was really comfortable for me. Um, I always say converts make the truest believers, the strongest believers. I like that. Um, because we make this decision as an adult. It's not just, oh, I'm 18 and there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm 18 and I'm sort of doing what my family did. Mm-hmm. Instead, you're saying, wow, I've, I've thought about this now for a good 40 years. And um, I'm, I have found my home. I relate to that. I've always felt like I wish that, you know, it's almost like I wish I wasn't like my parents in any way just because it's like, well, then it's like I found it on my own and there was none of that influence. And that's sure. sort of unreasonable. But I finally grew up. Right. Yeah. I picked all this. None of it was given to me. Um, but I mean, so when you were younger and you mean you still believed in something of the Republican Party, was the idea that they were valuing the individual in a way that Democrats weren't? Like in decades previous? So uh, I guess it was the idea that I, I didn't feel that the Democrats weren't. It mm-hmm. was just where I was. It, I did, it wasn't a negative feeling toward Democrats. It wasn't like, oh, gosh, the Republican Party is better at this or better at that. It was just in those early days, that whole philosophy behind it. I've always been pro-choice from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I was on the board of Planned Parenthood as a pro-choice um, Republican woman and never had any issue no one ever looked twice at me uh, many during the era i was on many of my uh fellow board members were also republican it never came up right and um i was a uh, in, until 94 and then people would start uh you know you you have to in in the republican side you have to stick more toward this platform so pro choice started to be a bad thing um i've always been pro Now we say sensible gun regulation, but back then we called it gun control. I've always been pro-sensible gun regulation, and that was something 94 started, and it really seemed like that was a sea change where all of a sudden people were telling me, you're not welcome in this party. You know, I guess you tell me often enough, and 
I'm going to believe you. Sure. <laughs> well, was, I mean, was there any uh, tension with your husband as far as him being a Democrat, or was it something you could easily sort of just have beliefs that went across the aisle and whatever side it might be on the yeah, party I, lines? Yeah, we, we share common values, and so that's never been an issue. Again, like I said, I don't really look at those letters behind people's names because well, I want to get to know a person. And so um, it was never a thing. And, you know, quite frankly, I mean, he and I are very different people. He, he's been everything. Right. <laughs> and I guess I've been everything, too, but just not quite as dramatically as he sure. has been. Well, I mean, I, get, I guess that kind of leads to a bigger question for me. And I've been wondering, is the party system itself having two parties, is that really helpful for our politics in general? I mean, is there a good argument to have that system? Sure. Um, you know, that argument, though, centers around money. I've thought that, and that, that seems bad to me. That seems right. like not the way we want to center our politics right. to actually be democratic and represent yeah. people. So in the ideal world, um, you wouldn't have that. Um, where we've gotten to is it's the reality of the world we live in today is that um, unless you have the backing of your party, you're going to find it a really hard row to hoe um, in trying to run for especially federal office. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get to the statewide offices and sometimes you even get lower than that for those down ballot offices. Um, If you were to design it all again, Oh, for goodness sake, no, don't let this in. Um, you know, we have this dark money now, too, exuding influence. So with, I think you need to do something about that dark money, and I think it needs to come from federal legislation, really um, coming up with legislation that counteracts the Supreme Court's decision and um, is still constitutional, but to make sure... I, I still wonder how they ever came up with, and I'm a lawyer by education. Right. Um, I still ha- wonder how they ever came up with the theory that a corporation is the same as a person. Um, and that still doesn't get to it either. I think as long as you have these dark money packs and if people were identified within them, so then it shows that Ann Ashford gave $500 to this pack, that's fine. It's where you're not identifying the individuals. I think that's where we're getting into trouble. And that's where we're having that issue. So I think you need to take care of that first, that money issue. And then I think you can, I think the parties would naturally go by the wayside, but you diminish their importance. Well, I mean, that, I feel like you could get a lot of people to agree with that as as a basic concept. But it seems like because of the money and because of some of the inherent corruption behind that, it's hard to get enough political willpower to make anything happen with that. Right. I mean, do you see that changing in the future, or is that part of just what new people have to get into Congress to really change? I, I think we're going to have to have new people into Congress to change it. I mean, people who don't want the dark money, don't want to sort of engage with that? Is that what it's going to take? Or Well, I think it's going to – so there's – I think there's a basic confusion out there now, too. So there's sort of this dark money issue where people say, oh, that's bad. And I agree. It's bad. And that's where, like I said, you're not identifying the individuals who are giving this. And then there's things where people expand it to things like corporate PACs. Mm-hmm. Those are those are identified. If you go down into it, you can see that um, Ann Ashford was an employee of X corporation and she gave to their corporate PAC. So you start to see those identifiers. I don't have a problem with that. Um, so what we need to do is make sure that we all understand there needs to be transparency and that's what's missing in today's world. And so as long as we have transparency, then people can give all they want. In my ideal world, it would be publicly financed campaigns. And what I always said is every single office, you'd count the number of constituents in that office. So let's say you were running for dog catcher. And you have 10 households that are constituents for you. That's it. So everybody would be given, and let's say a five or a six-page color brochure costs $5 to send, to to produce and send to the house. Then everybody would get $5. That's what I would do. And just say, hey, if you want to spend your six pages slamming your opponent and talking about other things other than what you stand for, that's up to you. But this is your one chance where you get to go to the voters and you get to say, here's what I stand for, here's what I hope you support. Make everybody sort of do their homework. And Now, will that ever happen? No. But 
somewhere between my ideal world and where we are today and closer to my ideal world is where I'd hope we'd get. Sure. And I mean, for you, I mean, I'm sure just by na- the nature of who you are, you've always been sort of thinking about a lot of what the world should look like, you know, sure. what it could look like, even just being a lawyer. I'm sure that's a lot of what you would, were doing and thinking about. What was the point when you thought it was time for you to actually become a part of the political world and run for office, though? Uh, so I ran for office it's eight years ago now, 2012, or almost eight years ago, um, for Regent, and I lost. And um, so that was my first foray into it. I married my husband in 1993, and so that was my first foray into understanding it on a closer level, mm-hmm. what a legislative process looked like. I have a father, I have uncles, I have cousins who've all done into the gone into the political forays. Whether they were physicians first, lawyers first, business people first, they've done this as sort of a sideline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I was a government and international studies major in college. So you've always been interested in this. Always been interested in it. I graduated from Westside, and there's a teacher, was a teacher there. He's still with us, um, and I hope he listens to this, because Steve Watala is his name. Phenomenal teacher, and he set me on my life's coursework. Um, he taught a course in international relations, and I fell in love with it. And at 17 years old, I thought, I'm going to move away from Omaha. I'm going to move outside the United States, and I'm going to go be an international lawyer. So then I went away to college and decided, oh, Omaha's not so bad. I can still go and travel. But I was a government and international studies major, came back, went to law school here at Creighton, and um, I've had the opportunity to work for global companies where I was able to travel the world and um, still work at the same time and, and get our messages across. It was in human resources. Okay. So um, that's where you start to understand. So you understand first what you can do as an individual, then what you can do in a role. And then as I was exposed to more and more roles in the public sector, in government, as elected officials, I started to understand that, okay, now that's the next step that I can take. So it's been a gradual evolution, but it hit me in 2016, if Brad would not have run, um, I would have done it then. Again, in 2018, I would have done it then. And so um, that's why it, it's just, it builds and builds and builds, and you know that's what you're meant for, and you know that you've seen the ins and outs and that you can contribute that way. And so you need to take that leap of faith and throw your hat in the ring and go for it. Was it a hard decision to decide if uh, your husband or you would run? No, no, no. no. He's, um, he's good. He's, he's moved on to other things in his life. He's still really active, uh, working on projects that he chooses and um, enjoying himself a great deal. So, I, What I pre- always appreciated about him was I would always see him around. Like He was always right. a part of the community. I like to go to coffee shops. I yep. sat next to him at coffee shops so many times over the years. I bet. I uh, bet. And, I mean, that's something that it's not a high bar necessarily for – representatives but there are several of our people who are you know in part of the federal government whether senator house who it's like i've never seen you know ben sass sitting around at a coffee shop for example just you know not to pick on him specifically but it's just like that seems like to represent your community to be a part of the community to make sure you're seen in the community not just at big events but just you know everyday life grocery shopping yeah it's normal things yeah one person i've always seen grocery shopping is ben nelson Right. <laughs> and and he goes out and does their family's grocery shopping. I see him all the time. John Kavanaugh, same way. This is a former governor, senator, and a former congressperson. So, yeah, we everybody lives lives, whether or not you've been elected to the... I suppose if you're elected president, you're no longer allowed to go grocery shopping. <laughs> yeah. But um, the rest of us, uh, we still have to make sure that we have milk in the house and bread and whatever else you want. Sure. So. When you meet people who... Whether they specifically disagree with maybe policy proposals you've had or whether it's just, I don't like Democrats or whatever that sure. might be. What's your general approach to somebody who's just coming from a different sort of political, uh, you know, current current political stance, right. I guess. Not necessarily even background because obviously you were Republican before. Sure. But just different sorts of people. Sure. I, I ask them to um, please help me understand their position. And um, let's talk about it. And let's really, I, and I want to learn. I'm not trying to challenge you. 
um, I want to learn and figure out where you're coming from and why you think that way because I think we can all learn from something from one another. Um, there are very few cases where I think that I would I, if someone's coming from a point of hate, I don't take the time. Sure, right. Um, but if they're coming from a heartfelt, good intention, just you know, I I know people very well who really feel a fear of giving up their guns. Now, when you sit down and really talk about it, they're not talking about things like the assault weapon ban. They would actually be okay with that. Um, they're talking about. Gosh, I went and did it the right way to get licensed for concealed carry. So I took the classes, I took the tests, I did the licensing. I think everybody should have to do it the same way. And so instead of that knee-jerk reaction of, oh my goodness, you know, I have concealed carry and you want to come and take it, they're under, if you just sit down and talk with them, let's talk through the issue a little bit and figure out what this means to you and what you think. And we can come up with more common ground than you think. You find that they believe in universal background checks and that you should close all the loopholes like the boyfriend loophole. Um, they believe that assault weapons really are weapons of war and, and don't have a place. And by the way, we had an assault weapons ban in place. What on earth makes it so difficult to put it back in place? We had it for 10 years. I mean, a lot of it, it seems like what you're saying is you're up against more sort of right-wing hyperbole about positions right. as opposed to actual positions that a lot of people actually have right. on the on the left right and that that seems like that that shuts down a lot of conversations just the hyperbole about it and then sort of this perceived extremism whether there even is any right and that i mean you don't see a whole lot of trying to understand the positions of people on the other side unless you're in a place like nebraska Maybe. Maybe maybe I'm oversimplifying that. I'm not really sure. I hope you're oversimplifying it. I, I think that when people get to know each other one-on-one, -on -one, they can have these conversations. Again, very few bad actors on any side of the political spectrum. Um, but the vast majority of us crave these conversations. We crave to understand one another. And I used to be, the, I, I was chair of the Board of Inclusive Communities for a while. And we had an exec executive director then, and they have wonderful people now too, but Barb Angelello. And one thing she said that's always been right at the top of my head every single day, and that is, if you know someone, you can't hate them. And so the more you get to know people and actually talk and not just rely on things like Twitter, um, which is truly where I think souls go to die sometimes. <laughs> uh, it seems to only be used against people, not for people. There's a yeah. few people who put things out there and say, look at the puppies for today. And I think, oh, yes. That's why I, I try not to use it. Cause it's like, why am I even being mean about this thing? Right. I don't even care that much about right. it. And, and no one reads it if it's nice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of silly. Um, so we just need to take that time and get to know one another and talk to one another. And we find a lot more of agreement than we think we do. So I always use the example, too, of I've never met anybody who is against covering pre-existing conditions. Never. And I don't know that I could find that person. What? So if we have that agreement, why don't we start from there? Well, that, that sort of begs the question, then, of why is it that it doesn't become part of the legislation. I mean, right. why is there that push against it? Is it if people, for the most part, can agree on it, why is it that in the Senate or in the House it's not easy to agree on it? Right, and that's where I think you need to elect a lot more people like me. People, you know, at, like I said, I don't like labels, but I call myself a pragmatic problem solver. I'm just going for the practical solutions. And so if we all agree, what I, my goal is to get there and say, gosh, whoever member, I don't, care about the letter behind your name mm. who here wants to see pre-existing conditions covered and make sure that it's legislative protective legislatively protected i bet you'd get everybody's hands to raise and so okay great let's take care of this i don't care if my name's on that bill i bet you'd find 435 sponsors or co-sponsors but well why is it that they don't vote for it i mean is it is it actually because they disagree with it, or is it an issue of money or just some sort of other pressure? I think that um, what it gets to is people don't take things one item at a time. It's always in this big package. And so then the party that's not sponsoring it um, ends up saying, well, gosh, you add the other party added in all of these things we can't live with. 
and they call them poison pills and things like that. And so then they have people really convinced that they're going to be um, primaried. And they've got them so scared. So it's not really money, even. It's just this pressure of being primaried. And the Republicans have been doing this successfully for years since the Tea Party made its advent. So I, I talked to plenty of Republican spouses over the years. And their major fear for their spouse was always that they would get primaried if they weren't conservative enough. That they may feel personally a little bit different, but knowing their district, they had to be more conservative or there was going to be someone coming in from the right. The Democratic Party, shame on them, seems to be doing sort of the same thing now. Threatening people who are looking out for their district with, hey, we may primary you if we don't think you're left enough. Guys, you know what? It, and it's it's not to say that primaries shouldn't exist, but... Obviously, they were chosen for a reason. They were elected because they pretty much represent the district. So be really careful where you try to exert this power because it keeps us from ever, ever coming together and actually achieving something. Stay tuned for more of my conversation with congressional candidate Ann Ashford after this quick break, right here on Riverside Chats. From Omaha Public Radio, I'm Emily Chen Newton, and you're listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made Over America, the podcast that's part history and culture and part science, and all about how the Midwest has influenced the United States as a whole. But here's the thing. I am not from the Midwest, so in every episode I do the research and then I sit down with someone who is from here, and together we explore the stories of famous persons, products, inventions, social movements, and cultural beliefs that got their start right here in the middle of America. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and you are listening to my conversation with congressional candidate Ann Ashford, which was recorded in July 2019 before the current COVID-19 outbreak and any government response to it. All right, and that seems like it just moves things closer to a party line defines whatever yeah. one does, which gets rid of having people voting in general right. if it's all just, okay, you have to vote this one way on every single issue. Right. And that gets dictated by people who aren't necessarily who the voters want. Right. I don't know. It, just, it seems like it overcomplicates or maybe oversimplifies even. I don't know what it's doing, but it just it. I I don't know why more opinions is a bad thing in general. And and I haven't been part, or anybody I know hasn't been part, know well, um, hasn't been part of the Republican caucus. So I can't say that's how I, my my understanding from looking at the outside in says you need to stick to the platform or else. Sure. From the Democratic platform, the that caucus will say to its members, obviously, this is what we prefer. Mm -hmm. But vote how you need to. Vote according to your district. Vote what is in the best interest of the people you're representing. Okay. And you're, you're happy with that? I'm very happy with that. That's one of the things that went into the decision for me to change because I thought, this is the way it's supposed to be. Right. You know, yeah, that platform's out there, but does anybody really agree with 100% of any party's platform? No. Well, it seems like you... I mean, maybe shouldn't is too strong of a word, but it's like you should be skeptical if it's like I agree 100% with other people's opinions all the time. You right. Know? I mean, sure, you're your own that person. That means you're not an individual and you right. haven't thought. Well, I, it seems like that's a sort of an epidemic in Congress right now. Right. There doesn't seem to be a ton of people actually just doing what they believe. And right. I mean, I don't necessarily want to badmouth specific people, but it seems like that trend should be bothersome. And I don't know if – I mean, maybe – I don't know how much of it's, uh, I don't know if it's on the radar of a lot of people, I guess. I think it is on the radar of the American public just because that, I think that's what frustrates us. Now, whether we can put those words to it, I'm not sure about that yet, but that's what's frustrating us is just seeing these folks where it's like, gosh, I tried to call my congressperson and they won't call me back. Or even though I know a hundred of my friends got together and called them as well with the same issue, we're getting nothing from them, and they just seem to be following the party platform. I think we need a lot of people with a lot more guts. So when I was first going into the working world at a law school, I got advice from a CEO, and he said, the best thing you can do and the way you will know you're always succeeding is if you work yourself out of a job. 
because you've done it well enough, so they don't need you anymore. That's You need to go into it with that in your heart and say, obviously, I'd like three or four terms there. But if I get enough done, you you treat each term as your first and last term. Right. Yeah. And that's it. And you're going to be courageous, and you're going to remember who sent you there, and you're going to remember to listen to them. And if you're lucky, you're going to make 70% of them happy, or at least satisfied enough, if you're really lucky. But... People can live with about 70% of your positions, but no one's going to agree with you 100%. Again, it goes back to, gosh, do you have a brain that you think on your own? Right. Well, it's just like fear of being primaried. So it's like, I'm not going to do the thing that I believe is right for the country because I'm afraid of being primaried. I don't think a whole lot of people who, when they get primaried and then if they lose their next term, like they're not generally out on the streets. You know, it's like right. they have options. It'll be right. okay. It seems like it's still worth it to do, you know, follow your own conscience. It does. And, and it's no, I, I didn't mean to reflect poorly on those individuals who let that pressure get to them. Maybe I did. Um, I, don't, I mean, I'm not meaning to drag good, certain people in the mud necessarily. No, and, here, and, and we're not naming names, and, and they're good people, the ones I know. And we're not even talking about Nebraskans that I know. Okay. Um, these are people who, no one listening to your podcast. Well, I don't know. Maybe you're reaching well, people all over the country. Maybe. You we'll see. Know. I don't know. Yeah, you might be. Um, you need to have some courage. You need to have that heart that says, it's okay. I'm not going to be swayed by this because I know that my district really wants this. And this is what's going to be best. And I don't care that the party is saying you have to do X, Y, Z. Um, it's, it's just not good. And so as far as then locally, so obviously Don Bacon's going up for another term. Right. What is it? I mean, do you think that Don Bacon... It, my stereotype about Nebraska, please correct me, whatever it is I'm oversimplifying once okay. again, is it seems like, you know, it's traditionally red state. I don't know that it matters that much who the Republican candidate is. I feel like they have an advantage where a lot of people will just vote Republican, period. And it doesn't, the candidate itself is not that important. Do you find that I'm over, where am I oversimplifying there? I think you are oversimplifying. I think people, um, are more thoughtful about it than that. I think you have Republicans who are, um, they wouldn't necessarily vote for the Republican candidate just because um, they have an R behind their name. If um, they were a truly horrendous person or if they disagreed with them. I think that there are more Republicans here in this state who go along with more of the Republican Party's platform. And so, therefore, that acts as a good test for them where um, they believe in um, whatever the platform may be and um, they'll vote for people who they believe that echo that platform. Part of the tradition of, you know, true conservatism, and I don't know, like it seems like conservatism is kind of muddled in a lot of ways in the Republican Party, but conservatism goes back to that original value of just individualism, people believing what they believe, following whatever it is, and just having those freedoms to be individuals, yeah. which does not go along with party line. Right. So do you find that maybe it's good for you to value that individualism, really embrace that, as opposed to, like, you're not obviously running on this, I will just be a party line person. Correct. Do you think that there's an in with certain people who are conservative, but maybe not just party line Republicans who would value that as well? I think that gives me an in with pretty much everybody because I think that people want to be seen as individuals, um, not only feel as though they're conducting their lives in an individual way, but want to be seen and heard as an individual and not be seen as. So there are two of you gentlemen in the room today, and I don't automatically believe, and you're both white. And I don't automatically look at you and say, oh, you must both feel the same way about X because you both happen to be male and white. What I need to think, what I need to do instead is ask you, what do you think about X? And you may sh surprise me. It may go against my, common, uh, my commonly held belief system, but you're going to get to answer as your own individual. So I think that... Um, I'm uniquely qualified for this because I have been on both sides of that aisle and I have spent my life here. Um, 
edu- being educated here, being raised here, and working here. And so listening to people without regard, again, to that letter behind their name and uh, trying to understand what are your concerns, how do you feel it should be solved, and what can we do together to get there? And, I mean, do you think that your past then as a Republican is useful for you to try to bridge that gap between people? I think it's useful only for me. It's, you know, it's not like the Republican Party really owned me. Right. Well, that's your point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, they were like, oof, she's not really one of us. Um, it's only useful for me in that it gives me my my way of looking at the world, mm-hmm. that I understand that when you have this letter behind your name, you might look at the world in this way. And when you have that letter behind your name, you might look at the world in a little bit different way. But here's where they cross over. So it gives me that personal understanding. Were you really into political philosophy when you were younger and sort of getting into international relations and whatever you did in college? Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, the majority of the things that we concentrated on. So I started college. I was graduated from Westside in 1978 and graduated from Notre Dame in 82. And um, it seems like no matter what we were doing, the conversations always led back to diplomacy, number mm-hmm. one, and number two, negotiating um, nuclear treaties. Okay. <laughs> it was like, oh, God, is there something else in the world besides this? So we didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time on things like USAID um, and things, you know, the world's changed a lot since then. Um, but just it, it built my, that and so when I was in first grade my dad was drafted into Vietnam War and um, he went when I was seven and uh, when I was nine was done he was on an aircraft carrier so he was never in imminent danger for his life um, but that started building I really hated that because especially at, at six years old it's it took my dad away. Right, yeah. And then I started watching the news, and I realized this is where people die. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it took me a while to try and understand that dad wasn't there. That's the reason why he's not here, but he wasn't there where these people are dying. But he's trying to take care of the people who are hurt. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's where, I mean, I became pretty much... If I would have been a little bit older and 68 and things like that, I would have been out there protesting with him. But I was eight. Right. <laughs> so I, I really, mom didn't take me um, to the rallies. But um, I would have been protesting as an anti-war person then because that really affected me. And then getting to know the international relations thing was truly about international relations and um, the aspects of what diplomacy can do and should be doing as opposed to military action. You have to learn about the military action. It's important you be well defended, but always rely on diplomacy first. I remember, I think the New York Times or somebody had some article where it was like the Ben Sass book club and asked, you know, who would he, how would he define his political philosophy? And he's kind of on brand for the way he talks was, you know, Edmund Burke and Tocqueville and stuff like that. Um, and so, like, you go back to true sort of roots of conservatism in that sense. It's not. Again, it's it's not the Republican Party I joined as an 18-year-old. We wouldn't be, if you look at how we're spending just recklessly on the military right now and putting my 22-year-old in a precarious financial spot um, with the debt and the deficit that we're just seem to have no concern for. One of the things, I was a fiscal conservative. I mean, this this would never have happened. Probably the one thing that until I got older, really understood it was always, oh, the Democrats are going to really drive up the debt and spend money like it's just should be burned. In Nebraska, um, that's a really common line. I, mean, I know. Yeah. yeah. But it's the Republicans who have proven time and time again. Um, when you look at the presidents who've had the balanced or closer to a balanced budget or a lower deficit and things, um, it's just it's really ridiculous that we've come to this point. So, again, that's why I try not to look at people's the letter behind their names because you have to talk to them and find out how you are you on things like military spending and where do you think those dollars should be spent one of the things i'd like to see much more go into cyber than i would into an aircraft carrier right well it seems like that goes to your big tent point in general where it's almost like there's more room for true conservatism on the left right now than on the right yeah 
even though that's not really how it's framed. I know, but it's it's sort of bizarre. And then I hear some of my friends talking who are really um, libertarian. I mean, if they could really get out there as a libertarian, they'd be a libertarian. But when we talk, it's like, especially on social rights, we're the same. What, I mean, what would be priorities for you then if you got elected? What are some of the big things that you would want to change other than maybe some of the stuff we've already talked about? Right. So we, we do need to fix um, the ACA. Uh, I just I left my job the end of February. My benefits are running out in a few days. And so I just had to sign up in the marketplace for my son and I. He's 22, still in college. Mm-hmm. And my husband's on Medicare, thank goodness. We don't have to worry about him. But we, the two of us need insurance. And getting on the exchange and signing up for it was um, a treat <laughs> that I wish on no one. <laughs> um, and it's it's so inexpensive. <laughs> um, so it's it's a bit of a shock when you go through it. So we need to work on that um, and improving the ACA is geared to do. And that is to provide access. But now, as we're getting closer and closer, we're not there yet, to making sure that everybody has access to a payment vehicle for their health care, um, we need to work on bringing the cost down. And um, we're going to need to look at things that we've never looked at before. The last 10 years of my life I spent uh, working for physicians in private practice, doing the business side for them. So I've negotiated these contracts and things like this. Um, one of my concerns is that people turn toward Medicare as the answer for all issues. I am by far not an apologist for insurance companies. That is the last thing I am. But they set up their guidelines according to what Medicare does. So if Medicare first came up with the pre-authorizations and the second opinions and the ways you can deny coverage and things like that. So the insurance companies say, well, gosh, if Medicare can do it, so can we. That's a great idea. Why not? So... We're not there yet as a solution, and Medicare isn't the solution for everybody. I do believe Medicare should be an option on the marketplace for people who want to purchase it. I don't believe that it should take the place of all the insurance companies we have. Someday talk to a a member of a union who they've had hard-fought negotiations to develop and, and have a pretty great plan. They don't want to give that up. And having my husband on Medicare, I see he pays a premium, pays co-pays, deductibles. We have to have a supplemental plan for him, and we have to have a drug plan for him. And so it's not everything you just get. Mm. You you have some burden in the game. Um, so we need to fix those things. Now, the issue of pharmaceuticals, that's just atrocious. And so I always laugh... and. You know, everybody has to talk in sound bites now uh, because people don't want to, because we're all so busy, we don't want to take the time to try and delve further. So we just need to get a point across our points in sound bites. Right. So people talk about how Medicare should negotiate with drug companies the way that they do with other entities. Having worked in this field, Medicare doesn't negotiate. Medicare tells hospitals and physicians and other providers what they're going to pay them. Why on earth we can't change it to do that with medic- with pharmaceuticals is beyond me. Now, I understand that's – and I truly adore President Obama. Um, and I understand that was a mistake that they made in sure. giving that away to the pharmaceutical industry. And that was a big mistake. And so we need to change that immediately. And then some, something that nobody really talks about is the direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising. The fact that we allowed this – advertising on TV to say, take Acme drug, I'm not going to point any fingers at anybody, for this XYZ condition. So as you're watching TV, you may never have considered that you have XYZ condition, but all of a sudden now they're talking about it and you think, oh gosh, my, my leg does jerk that way, or my arm all of a sudden will raise itself up. And so I think I might have Acme condition or XYZ condition, so I might need ACME. So now you make a physician appointment, and you walk into your physician's office, and the physician's put in this horrible spot because the patient has come in saying, I think I have XYZ. So the physician now has to either talk the patient through it, but they've convinced themselves they have XYZ. So now they have to engage in some testing. That's not cheap. Right. And they come back, and let's say 
okay, truly you did have XYZ. But XYZ may be handled best by lifestyle, diet, exercise changes. But the patient isn't hearing that because they heard acne is the thing that's going to cure me from XYZ. And if I don't take it, I'm going to suffer these consequences. Is that something that you would want legislation to limit then? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. So um, the United States and New Zealand are the only ones who allow the kind of advertising we do. And there's a couple ways you can do it. So you could still allow the pharmaceutical companies to advertise, and they would just be allowed to only advertise what uh, about health conditions. So if you have these symptoms, you might have XYZ. If you do, see your doctor. That's it. There's no pharmaceutical uh, mentioned with it. There's no pushing that kind of drug. Or the other way is to say, if you have XYZ condition, this class of drugs will work on that condition. You should talk to your physician about this class of drugs to see if that's what you need to help you. Again, there's no brand name attached to it. There's nothing there. That way you could do it, and that would be that would withstand First Amendment tests, that the pharmacy companies are going to say free speech. Now, we limit cigarette advertising the same way, but we need to do that for pharmacy. Right. And the other thing is, too, is don't forget about the Internet because there's less and less stuff on TV and there's more and more people watching the Internet. So it would be the same sort of idea where it's like you limit the type, the way that they're advertising on the Internet? Okay. That's an interesting thing that I haven't heard a whole lot of big discussion about that. There isn't. There isn't. Uh, Jerry Nadler, uh, Representative Nadler, had uh, tried it a few years ago. I think what he tried was to um, his legislation, if I remember his legislation correctly, was going to disallow the deduction of direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising from their income tax returns. Okay. So they wouldn't be able to deduct it anymore. There's $6.7 billion that was spent in 2017. I don't have the 18 numbers yet. That's a lot of money. That's a lot yeah. of money. If you think of how... You know, pharmaceutical companies always talk about research and development, and is it, it is expensive. But other countries mandate what they'll pay, like Medicare could do here. Um, and so other countries, on average, for everything from pharmaceuticals to durable medical equipment, things like your x-ray machines, your CAT scans, and things like that, in the U.S., we pay a 30% premium because we don't have anybody saying, no, you can't do that. You don't get to do that to us. Um, and if you put that $6.7 billion towards the research and development costs of new pharmaceuticals, I bet that would help. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's a lot of reason it seems like to be cynical about the current political climate. Are you optimistic that things are moving in the right di- direction or at least there's a start to something that would make things a little less toxic than they seem right now? I'm very optimistic. I wouldn't do it if I wasn't, if I didn't think that we could change and get on the right track again. Um, I'm extremely optimistic. And and part of the issue is, too, once in a while Congress does do things right, but the issue is the media, what are they going to report on that day? Everybody came and did their jobs. Is anybody going to watch that? No. I I mean, whether they watch it or not, obviously that's still the goal. And I think there's a lot of, there have been all sorts of good things Congress has done throughout time. But it just seems like right now, part of what we've been talking about even in this conversation is when you get down to two party lines that maybe don't even line up with where the country is, you do have a problem. And it's easy to assume in general, like, well, Congress is broken. Right. I mean, what is it? that keeps you optimistic or makes you feel what trends are you seeing that make you feel optimistic or feel like you can get in there and help push in the right direction so it's more and more voices like myself when i talk to people when other people are running like this across the country more and more voices across the country who get up and say we're going to do something about this we're going to keep on working on it we're going to take it seriously we're going to work with whoever we need to our colleagues from whatever party or political ilk across the board, we're going to work and solve these problems. So if you look at, uh, there's a caucus in the Democratic Party in the House called the New Democratic Coalition. They're called the New Dems. And they tend to be a little bit more fiscally conservative, very socially liberal. They were, prior to 2018, they had, I think it was 43 members, give or take one or two. Mm -hmm. After the 2018 election, they are now well over 100 Because across the board, and and people 
may call them centrists or moderates or whatever, again, a label that they want to put towards these people. But for the most part, the new members came from swing districts like we are here. Mm-hmm. And so they have become the largest caucus within the Democratic caucus within the House now. And they are the ones who are pushing common sense, pragmatic, practical solutions and trying to get things done. So I think as we elect more and more people who go to that, I love it that they are the largest caucus. It's my goal to first be elected to Congress and join that caucus. Look at the Women's March. Right. And I was here in Omaha. It got a chance to speak at the first Women's March here in Omaha. And I had a hard time to go back inside and compose myself because tears were running down my eyes because you saw all of these people come out and say, this isn't us. This isn't us. And so whether it's guilt because you didn't actually go to the polling booth or whether it's regret because you voted for this person you thought would turn the country around from where you thought it was not doing well and your dreams haven't been realized, or whether it's um, disgust, or whether it's happiness um, that, oh, I get to vote for this person that I really want. I think all of those mechanisms are going on in people's heads and driving them to become more involved and driving them to, um, maybe it is a little Trumpian, but take back their power. And realize that, yes, indeed, I may be one person, but I am one person with a really loud voice, and I get to speak. Look at the, I mean, the 14-year-old we have here in Nebraska in charge of Students Demand Action. He's 14. He's starting ninth grade. That's amazing. It makes me jealous, honestly. I wish I was that aware of things, I even know. if I was that age. I know, and I don't think I was. <laughs> no, I, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> And I just want to thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Glad to come back anytime. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. This episode was produced by myself and Ben Matukowitz when our show was originally recorded out of Pet Shop in Benson. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Next week, we'll continue our Congressional Candidate Series leading up to Nebraska's primary on May 12th through a conversation with Kara Eastman. Check out our backlog of episodes on your favorite podcast app to find more conversations with the fascinating people right here in Nebraska. I'm Tom Noblock. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>